Hey guys, you're listening to the Tasha Labs podcast. And as I mentioned last week that, as you know, crypto market has been pretty quiet over the past month, right? But the US equity market has been very active and we've been in sort of a pretty big bull market over the past month. So as a result, I've been quite busy. Um, but since August, you know, it's some some of you, you, if you follow the market pretty closely, as you know, we are entering a bit of a correction or maybe a major correction <laughs> for the next uh, month or a couple months or so. So I actually have a bit more time to create more content at the moment. So I figure I'll do another episode uh, this week. And since there's not really that much going on, you know, in real time in the market right now, I figured I want to talk about something that is evergreen, but also practical and important. Okay. Um, today, I want to talk about market cycles, because I think this is actually, maybe some people know and some people don't. To me, this is actually one of the most important edges that you can have in the market. You see like everybody, um, you know, every day scrolling Twitter and, uh, uh, you know, chat rooms and looking for alphas, you know, that that's all well and good, you know, in terms of a specific investment, uh, specific stocks or specific tokens that you can, you can trade, you can invest in that that's all well and good, but seriously, to be honest, if you kind of master the market cycle if you are um well in sync with the market cycle like the specific selection of token or stocks becomes less important because if you remember you know in like 2021 for example when the market is on a upswing you can pretty much pick any token or any stock and make money right so it's like shooting fish in a barrel when the market is supporting you. On the other hand, if you're going against the market cycle when the market is in a downturn and you really, really have to go long or you know, go look for investment um, themes and tokens, of course you can still succeed even in deep, you know, bear market, there are things that are going up. The thing is your probability of success or your win rate or your hit rate will be much lower. It will be a lot more of a struggle, right? So I'm not saying that you cannot do it. You can, of course, you know, be on the long side in a, uh, in a bear market or be on the short side in a bull market and still make money if you are skilled enough. But if if I were you, or you know, if if we are talking about most of the investors, majority of people, you don't have a very specific sector or individual taker um, related edge, then mastering market cycle is essentially your biggest edge, and a lot of this is. You, you don't need like a secret uh, a secret tools for this. Well, of course there are secret tools, but the basics, you know, for you to um, stay out of trouble, so to speak, in the market, there are a lot of the basic things that you can use, basic tools that you can use to actually 
to uh, make yourself be more or less in sync with the market, right? You've heard of people talking about, uh, joking about their experience over several uh, market cycles in the crypto market, for example, the elevator up, elevator down, and you know, by the end of uh, the bull cycle, they they're pretty much not much better off compared to where they started. Why? Because people didn't understand the market cycle, those like a particular set of investors, right? So I think this is really, um, you know, it's one of the most important edges that you can have. And also it's arguably the easiest edge you can have. It's like a, a low hanging fruit to increase your returns, both like maximize your return on the upside and also to minimize your drawdown when the market climate is not good, okay? So that's why this is so, so, so important. And this is also an evergreen topic. So I wanna talk about this today, but I don't wanna tell you like what to think about market cycle because different markets are different, right? They're, they're, they're the tools that you can use to track different market, to, to track the track cycles in different markets are different. And also, it's not like the same tools will work now, like 50 years from now or 100 years from now, because the market structures, they change, right? So whenever someone tells you, 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 you see like people posting video on YouTube with the title like, this indicator will give you 100% win rate, that kind of thing, right? Um, I that kind of thing, you know, I just, for me, I, I just do not believe they exist. And I will tell you why, okay? Why there is no like indicator, single indicator that can give you 100% win rate. Um, but, but the thing is, even if there is an indicator that does that, right? It's likely will change over time. So, so rather than tell you um, what to look for to, 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 um, to detect market cycles, I want to approach this as a, investigative framework. I want to discuss how you can think about market cycles to come up with your own ways to track and detect market cycles, okay? So um, to do this, we can we can start, I think we can start with the analogy, all right? So, so the market, you know, like market cycles, there are periods that goes up, periods that goes down. It has seasonalities, just like nature has seasonalities, right? And when the spring comes, if you're a farmer, you want to plant seeds, right? So when you detect the spring has arrived, it guides your actions of what to do at that particular point of time. Um, in contrast, when the fall and winter arrives and you detect that is happening, that also guides you, that should guide your action. And because that is time, you should be harvesting your crops. If you don't do that, then eventually your crops will, will rot in the field and you will reap nothing, right? So that seems like very straightforward, right? So, but if you think about <laughs> how how do you actually tell that spring has arrived and winter has gone? So think about that question for a minute, all right? So I know some of you thinking, um, what a stupid question is that, Tasha? 
I just walk out and I know, like I see things and I know just, I just feel like spring has come. Okay. But I would argue if you break down that process of how you know into steps, you'll realize that is actually a pretty complex learning process. Okay. So for example, if today you walked out the door, what do you need to see in order to determine that spring has arrived? Maybe you will see, number one, temperature has gone up, right? Or maybe you see there are more birds out there singing, or there are more insects chirping, and you kind of smell this uh, sweet grass smell in the air because the air molecules have been warmed up by the warm temperature. Or maybe you see that, you know, people have been more active. There are more people outdoors and people wearing less like thinner clothes. That can also be a clue. And also what you see in your weather app. <laughs> That's also a thing, right? Or maybe you see that um, the daytime, the length of daytime has increased compared to the length of night times. That is also a sign that things are turning into towards spring, right? So, so all of these things, so the activity of the birds, the activity of people, of insects, of like uh, of trees and flowers, of temperature, um, all these things. So if you're a data scientist, <laughs> you will call these things features, right? Those are like uh, if you're it's in if if it's in your data set those will be like uh, different columns in your data set that tells you um, a specific each of them is a specific aspect of your data set and all of those combined together hopefully when you run it through your model through your you know if you're running like some deep learning like neural network model you give these uh, to your neural network model and these features and your model will eventually figure out, okay, according to these, the parameter values across these different features, we arrive at the conclusion that right now it is spring. Okay. So, but as a human, you essentially do the same thing, but it just like you do this so fast, you don't consciously, consciously realize that, right? So when you walk out the door, you see these 10 variables. <laughs> the insects, the birds, the temperature, the, the, the people, the trees, okay? all these things, you see how, what their values are, how they behave, right? And you derive at a conclusion that spring has come. Now, do you always know this? You do not, right? So you you definitely didn't know how, how to tell that spring has come when you are like six months old, right? You, you probably didn't even know what spring is or what the implication is in terms of, okay, the weather will be warmer and then after spring there will be summer and so on and so forth. And there will be ice cream. You, you didn't know any of this when you were born, right? So this is a learned knowledge. This, this judgment about spring or this judgment about when, when the winter comes, it's the same deal, right? You can tell the winter has come even if you don't hear, you, you don't listen to any weatherman telling you. So the weatherman will be any kind of stock gurus or investment gurus that you can listen to on Twitter. <laughs> but you essentially, when as far as the weather or the uh, 
seasonality of nature is concerned, you don't really need that, right? Because you, over time, throughout the years, after repeated learning and iteration, and you know, after experiencing these cycles and over and over again, even seasonalities and over and over again, you have developed your own model to accurately detect when the spring has arrived and when the winter winter has arrived from these set of variables that you rely on, right? So that is the, you're, you can say that's the human learning process over time. You don't ever think about it anymore. You just step out and you know immediately this is spring, okay? If I ask you, how do you know this spring? You can't even tell me because it becomes so intuitive part of you. But you actually, your brain actually knows, right? So, um, so, but, but it, you, you, will, you will have a hard time to articulate that process, right? But, but the thing is that that is actually how things happen, how you learn. And this is how like, um, you know, neural network models in data science that actually learn about um, how to recognize a particular outcome, right? So essentially you feed the, you feed the, you know, the, the, the neurons with a set of uh, values and across these uh, 10 or 20 features and you assign them initially maybe some some random weights to these uh, feature values in terms of how important each of them each feature is right whether you should put more value on the birds chirping or you should put more value on temperature rising that that is a question right at the beginning you you didn't know but but then after you you know you start with some baseline of different, you assign different weights to different values. And then after that, you kind of compare your predicted outcome with the actual outcome to see how good you did, right? This is like, you you do this, you assign the same task to different neurons. Um, they are, you know, running, they are doing the prediction with different weights for, for, the, uh, for the variables in your feature set, right? And then after that, you kind of, you look at some of the, predicted outcomes that are closer to reality, right? And then you look at that and you see, oh, um, in this prediction, we use like a 0.5 weight for the birds chirping, for example, because that seems important and that lead to a more accurate, a closer um, prediction of the outcome to reality. And then in your next iteration of the model, you kind of signed, you kind of, you know, steer your weights towards giving that particular feature a higher weight. And you, over time, you iterate and you, you iterate. And so eventually you come up, come up with a more or less optimal, optimized set of weights in terms of relative importance of different features, right? To tell you, to give you a more accurate prediction about reality. So. After all this rambling, I know you're you're sitting there thinking, Tasha, how does the, any of this have anything to do with market cycles? But just you know, try to try to be patient for a minute. Okay, I I, I promise you this this uh, it has a high relevance to what we are talking what we are talking about today, as relate to uh, the market cycles, because when you look at the you know how the market behaves, if you so if you don't know anything about any, you know, stock analyst or any, you know, investment persons, investment expert has told you about anything, 
how you think about this, how are you going to come up with a system to detect market cycles? And I will argue that you, you, you can basically go through the same process as how you learn about, how you learn to tell whether it's spring or it's winter. It's the same process. You basically, you collect a set of features and you kind of, you know, look at how these uh, features are related to the thing, which is the weather that you're trying to predict, right? Or you're trying to assess, make a judgment on. And you look at how well these features actually allow you to make the right assessment. And depends on that, you know, um, depends on that that comparison, you kind of refine your process or maybe you add some other features, other variables, or maybe you subtract some variables. And eventually you arrive at a system that works for you, that has a, you know, more or less more reliable accuracy. So how does this work <laughs> in reality, right? So um, this part is where um, we, need some examples, right? So for this part, I'm going to start sharing my screen, okay? Because I will need to um, show you um, some charts because we need some visual component for this part, okay? So as you know, pretty much all of these, all of my podcast episodes, you can just like listen to them without having to look at the screen. That's in most cases, right? But in this specific case, um, I would say you probably want to, you know, go find this episode on YouTube. Um, I will try to be, again, I'll try to be descriptive. So you, you will probably, you can get the gist of it if you are just listening. But um, if you can have a screen <laughs> in front of you and follow along, that will probably do both of us uh, more good, okay? So, so right now what you're seeing here <laughs> is the price point of NASDAQ, right? So this is like a candlestick type of chart. You can you know, you can just turn this into a price linear uh, line chart as well. But um, essentially, if you just look at this, okay, and you're thinking about how can I tell when the market turns from spring to winter or from winter to spring? How can I tell, right? So if you just look at this chart, what, what do you notice? You notice in the most recent period, price has declined since the middle of July, more or less, right? And in the previously, previously for several months, price has been on a rise starting, hmm, let's say uh, January of 2023. But even in this longer kind of uptrend, there are some um, so-called uh, corrections, right? For example, from February, to March, there is kind of a mini downtrend and then market resumed its uptrend, okay? So, and if you, look, if you look back to last year, okay, so since the beginning of 2020, price went down 
till March, and then March to April, it had a bounce. And then since April, it went down again till June, June to August had a bounce, August to October, it dropped again. So basically, if you look at these, if you look at this price trend, um, exposed after the fact, it's very, very straightforward to tell, right? Where the cycle has started and where the cycle has ended. And you can also apply your definition of cycle as well, right? So when we talk about cycles, um, you can you you can define them as, you know, um, do you call this uh, to from from January to February a you can call this a bull market, right? And from February to March, you can call this a bear market. To some people, it is a bear market if they're time horizon is very short. But if you are a quote unquote long-term investor, then this is nothing to you, right? From January to February, this little downturn. But if you're a like a swing trader or like a intraday trader, then this is a period of downturn for sure. So you, you also, you can define these cycles according to what kind of time horizon you're looking at. And the cycles is always, it, there. there is no, um, kind of an absolute sense of what a cycle is, it always is relative to your time frame, right? So um so 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 that part is uh, you you always when you when you think about how to how do you detect and define these cycles, you need to think about, okay, what what is my target time frame, right? Am I doing is my time frame several days, several weeks, several months, or several minutes or several hours, right? So there is no like absolute um, definition of cycles. It, it's different for everybody. It depends on your 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 investing approach, right? But still, you know, if you just look at this, this is basically daily frequency, right? Daily frequency, a, a visualization of the daily frequency at daily frequency of what the um, you know stock index in Nasdaq is doing. But this is like after the fact, right? After fact, you see pretty clearly what the trends are. But the, but the thing is, how do you tell mm -hmm, when the cycle is beginning to turn, right? So, 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 so like, for example, um, let, let's take the, the latest one, right? So in July, uh, mid-July, you, you see like right now, like after the fact, you see it, it started declining, right? Because the there are more, um, uh, because like by definition, the declining price trend means price is dropping, right? And price dropping yesterday, the day before yesterday, and then that the, the day before, and price drops a lot more compared to um, previously. So that is, I, I would say that actually the first uh, first thing, first feature that you can use, you can think about, okay, maybe I can define a price that a turning point of price trend just from the price behavior itself. I do not need to use anything else, right? Um, how about, for example, I define it, um, I define a downturn, a potential start of a downturn, if within in the past five days, there are at least three days or more where the index price, that the index value declined, okay? So if that is our first um, 
if if that is uh, our first feature, our first, this this feature is uh, how many days um, within the past five days price has increased or decreased. Okay, so if you look at these five days, for example, um, is that five days? Now we have five days. Yes. So if you look at these five days, you have one day increase, two day increase, and you have one day decline, two day decline, three day decline. So from this is from July 28th to August 3rd. So you can say, okay, so this is a potential signal of a market downturn starting, right? So on the opposite side, you can say, I can, I can detect maybe there is a signal of potential uptrend in the market. If over a five-day period, there are at least three days where price um, is the index value is going up, which happens here in January, from January 6th to um, January 12th, you have essentially 12, no, you say you have five or six days price continuously increasing, right? So this can give you, let's say this is our first feature, okay? Uh, how do you find this feature? By just eyeballing the price, <laughs> right? And you find this, uh, um, you eyeball the price, right? You 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 notice the price downturn uh, means price starts dropping and you essentially give it a more quantitative definition of what it means when we say price are dropping, right? So you, you're, so it, essentially in this case, we define it as three out of the past five days, prices are price increased or price decreased. That, that's, that's how we define a market turning point. Now, if that is our first feature, let's say how well we do <laughs> by just using that one feature alone, right? I would say in, in many cases, you we actually are doing not badly at all. For example, this like starting March, uh, March 3rd, you see like this is like a, looking back, this is a turning point of the market, right? You have starting March 3rd uh, and, the five days and the five days after, you have essentially five out of five days when the market um, index value increased in NASDAQ. And this tells you, okay, there is a turning point in the market. But the thing is, you, our, there, there's one particular um, feature, right? Uh, is not foolproof, right? There, there, There's noise in it. For example, let's say you, and how do you know there? <laughs> How do you know your 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 um uh the 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 index or um the indicator or the feature that you're using is not foolproof? You found counterexamples, right? Just by looking through the historical data. For example, um in this uh uh May period, May 19th to May 25th, what happened here? We have four out of five days where index value decline. But at the end of the five days, like you have a gap up in the index, okay? And then it kind of uh, annihilated the previous downtrend uh, completely. And after that, index continues to go up, right? So it, so, so this, so, so this, this period, these five days, if you apply our indicator, our very, simple and rudimentary indicator to detect market turning point, it failed basically, right? So because market continued to go up afterwards. 
So then they give you that tells you that gives you some information, right? It gives you some info. It gives you the information that okay, maybe this indicator, it works sometimes, but it doesn't work other times, <laughs> as most indicators do. <laughs> so then, what 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 do we do? <laughs> so it's just like um when you are trying to learn about seasons in nature, right? If you have one indicator, which is temperature. For example, you say, okay, how, how, how do I define the spring? How do I tell spring has come? Oh, temperature is rising. But temperature can be rising when it's not spring, right? So it can be a particular warm day in the winter, especially given the uh, current <laughs> global warming trend, right? You have like very warm days in the winter. And when temperature goes up for a few days, do you, do you say that's spring? Do you reach the conclusion that's spring? No, because... You have other features, right? You have other features in your data set that is available for you to make the correct judgment. Why? Because in the winter, even though you have a few days and temperature is rising, your other features are, tells you, are telling you it's not spring yet because the birds are not here. They're still you know, in the South, they haven't migrated. So birds are not here, the insects not chirping and the, the trees are still barren, new leaves are not growing. And also it's the time of the year, it's December. Who are you kidding? Spring doesn't happen in December. I'm talking about in the Northern uh, hemisphere, right? So um, because you have these other information, these other features, you, you're not just relying on one feature to tell you whether spring has come or not. So basically, since now we know <laughs> this particular feature will give us some information, right? But it doesn't give us, um, it's, it's not like a foolproof predict, prediction. So then we can think of, okay, now we've, how, how about, then how can we find more features? So uh, then maybe the next thought we will have is that if you observe the price trend here, um, you notice that when the market is turning, like for example, in this period you have from, uh, from March to like uh, end of April, the index value is pretty flat, right? And then you had a market turning point happen when the uptrend resumed, right? So basically in this case, you have a acceleration of the index value of rising. So from this observation, your hypothesis maybe, okay, is that okay, I need a feature that tells me when the price trend is accelerating. And so if, if that happens, it tells me that maybe a new trend is starting uh, in the direction of, of that acceleration, all right? So, so this can apply to both uptrend and downtrend. So maybe that can help us to detect the market turning point. Then how are we going to uh, measure this acceleration of price movement. Of course, you can eyeball this, <laughs> right? So um, you can eyeball this and just see clearly here from, from April on, from the beginning of May, you have acceleration of price. Okay. Um, there, are, <laughs> there are benefits and drawbacks of doing this, okay? So you, you hear some people, especially if they have been um, investing in the market for a long time, they will tell you, 
I do not use any technical indicators. I only look at price. So when people say that, it's kind of a humble brag, <laughs> right? It's what, what they imply is like indicators are for, you know, technical indicators. Those are for stupid people <laughs> or people who don't know what, what they're doing or people who, who don't have enough brains. And why is that? Because essentially what those indicators is giving you additional tools to help you judge the magnitude of the move, for example, to give you additional perspective of the price trend in relation to the bigger picture, so to speak, right? So <laughs> it's not like the, those information is not already there. If you just look at the prices, you can of course detect you know, get those information from just the prices alone, because those also most of the technical indicators, they are derived from these either price or volume or combination, right? So it's not like they are, the source data is the same. It's not like they, they have additional source of information, right? They, they just uh, help you to organize information in a particular way to help you gain some perspective. And in the data science, like analogy, what do you call this? You call this dimensionality reduction, right? So why do we have dimensionality reduction for, for people who don't are not familiar with what dimensionality reduction is? I'll give you a very simple example. Um, if you go out travel, you use a GPS, right? You used to use map, for example. And the GPS tells you, okay, here on, on the GPS screen, there's this line, this is the street, this is the road. You're supposed to drive along this road, right? And on that screen, that road is just a line. It's not a real road, right? The real road is so much more complex than that than that line. The 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 real like a a real road it has different lanes, right? And it has uh, maybe on sidewalks, and maybe there are like flowers on the sidewalk. Maybe it, uh, there are pedestrians on the sidewalk. All those things, right? A real road is much more complicated than that line that you see in that GPS screen, but your GPS screen is doing a dimensionality reduction, right? So it's instead of describing that road, instead of giving you a realistic picture of the road, it just gives you a line because that's all you need. Because all you need to do in this context of what you're trying to do is get from point A to point B. All you need to know is that line. What it tells you is this is the direction to go, right? You don't need to know how many flowers on the roadside. <laughs> that is completely irrelevant for your task at hand. And if you are bombarded with all that additional information, it will just create a lot more noise to you, right? And then you have to use additional brain processing power to determine, okay, do I need information about flower or not? And then you, 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 you decide, okay, this information is irrelevant. Let me focus on the road. But that all that process, it takes processing power of the brain. It's exhausting, right? And also it, it creates a, it, we all have limited processing power, right? So even the, the artificial intelligence have limited processing power. That's why the NVIDIA chips are so in high demand. <laughs> well, it's why the data centers, everybody wants to build more of, right? So, but, but the thing is dimensionality reduction, very useful in terms of conserving your processing power of your brain to focus on the most essential tasks and also to reduce the noise that, you know, get rid of the, the, the irrelevant features of the data set that you really don't need. 
So why people are, you know, it's essentially, a, but, but the thing is, there's there also downside to this, right? Because when you reduce that road, a, a real road to a line on a screen, you kind of cut off a lot of information, right? So it kind of, the GPS has arbitrarily, or maybe not so arbitrarily, because your GPS has thought about this too. But let's just say it kind of, uh, it has already decided for you these other information in this data set is not relevant, okay? So it has cut them cut them out without your, um, with, well, if you're using the GPS, of course, you, you agree to that, to, to get rid of those part of information. But if you are trying to analyze some like a a, a, a new data set, a raw data set, maybe some part of the information is actually useful, okay? So these market indicators, you know, all these technical indicators and moving averages, the oscillators, the MACDs, the RSIs or whatever, all those, they are kind of a dimensionality reduction from the original price and volume data, right? And by the way, the, the, the price and volume data themselves are dimensionality reductions because it, it it's not like the, the market produces one price in a single day, right? Over throughout the 24 hours in a the day, there are hundreds and millions of transactions going on. All of them are executed on different price points agreed between the buyers and sellers. And there are gazillions of this. And at the end of the day, all you see on the chart, on like for example, this daily chart is like a one or two prices. It tells you opening price, closing price, high and low. That's all, right? So that in itself is a dimensionality reduction. If you're using other indicators, that is a further level of abstraction or dimensionality reduction. So <laughs> people who don't use those indicators, essentially what they're saying is that I do not want to have further reduction of this information set. Okay, because I think those indicators are um, reducing too much, and I don't like that. That's that's what they're saying. And also, it, I, I said it's a humble brag because they're essentially saying I have a big brain. I can actually process all this information without the help of indicators that kind of uh, you know organizing the information for me. But in any case, I digress. Okay, <laughs> but so uh, but let's just say if we want to detect. Um, where we are. Okay, we're we're talking about acceleration of prices. We want to detect a have an easy way to tell there is a acceleration of price increase or decrease because our hypothesis is maybe that will tell us something about the turning point of uh, of uh, market trend, market cycle, right? So in that case, um, there are different tools that we can use, different indicator we can use to this, right? But there are again different levels of dimensionality reduction. Like for example we can use a moving average, right? So here I'm I'm putting these these two lines on these orange, the orange line here, yellow line here is the nine period moving average. And the blue line here is 21 period moving average, right? So, um, so with all the caveats aside that I, we just to talk about, right? So these, these indicators, they are kind of uh, um, abstracting information from the price. And volume, um, they can be useful in organizing the information for you, but at a penalty, right? <laughs> at a penalty because they um, also reduce the, they basically opinionate it, right? They, they're they telling like moving average, for example, it's it's already telling you, okay, the uh, it thinks the average prices 
is the thing that you should pay attention to. Whether that is the thing you should pay attention to or not, that is actually, you need to think about it, right? So, but let's say for our purposes, this is actually a um, useful tool because, because it tells us if this uh, so-called faster moving average, this nine period moving average is moving, um, is, is on top of the slower moving average, in this case, 21 period moving average, then we can uh, sort of say market is in a uptrend, right? So then this gives us the idea that moving, maybe this so-called crossover of moving average, when we apply that to the index, it can give us information about whether market is turning or not, right? Let me remove this, um, remove this blue box. So for example, if we look at the most recent period, um, we had a crossover to the downside on Wednesday, August 9th, right? If we are using this particular feature, it will give us a assessment that market has turned, right? So, and if we do, if we look at a um, opposite side of example, if we look at, for example, um, this, uh, uh, this one, in March 15th, on March 15th, the moving average crossover happened uh, the opposite side, right? So so the nine period moving average moved above the 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 21 day moving average. So in this case, um, you can say, okay, we can make a, ju a judgment saying the market uptrend has started. And same thing, you can go back to January, it did the same thing, right? So then, okay. We have this, uh, now we have two features now, right? We have the, okay, consecutive, like a decline, uh, how many days of uh, uh, price increase or decrease over a five day period. And we also have this uh, moving average crossover, but how how well does this uh, moving average crossover help us to detect market cycles? Um, to assess that, we need to like look at past historical examples, right? So I hope you, you get the idea of what I'm trying to do here is that I'm essentially, we are trying to create, recreate the learning process that you used to determine whether it's spring or it's winter, right? So basically we collect all these, these uh, different features and we look at how these features help us make the best judgment depending on the, the historical data and then we combine these features and we figure out, okay, which figure, which feature is more important, less important? Do I really need this? Is this essential? Can I just uh, get rid of this and make things simpler, right? So those are essentially the judgment that we need to make in the end. And why are we doing this? Because this is a learning process that will help you to continuously refine your framework and criteria for detecting market cycles, as opposed to, if I'm today, I tell you, these, these one, two, five, one, two, three, four, five things you should use are definitive features to help you detect market cycles. How do you know I'm right? <laughs> I know every, every one of you, trust me completely. <laughs> Just kidding, right? Um, and you, I mean, you can, of course, you can do that. You can you can get those ready-made, uh, so-called alphas. Okay, some of them, it's argue, We 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 can debate how how much uh, those uh, are 
are worse. But let's just say you get these uh, uh, some tips about specific things that you can use to detect market cycles from other people. Do you know, <laughs> but you have not looked at how to apply this across his uh, across historical data, right? So you have no idea how good or bad these are. Uh, these are actually right in terms of usefulness. And secondly, you have no idea how they may evolve in the future, or if one day one of these is no longer useful. Can you detect that? Can <laughs> can you tell when one of those indicators that you are told is no longer useful? and you need to go find some new features. Can you do that? If you just get the ready-made indicators from someone else, ready-made like uh, uh, stock tips, okay, from someone else, then you would never be able to come up your own framework that allows you to evolve with the market. So that's why we are going through this a little bit painful. <laughs> to me, this is fun, actually. I know to some people it's painful. <laughs> But that's why we are going through this lengthy process because I'm trying to show you how to come up with your own framework, okay? And also, because I invest differently than you, you have a different time frame than me, right? You probably you have a different mindset than me. Maybe some people they're more comfortable on the long side, some people more comfortable on the short side. Maybe then you you will need to come up with your with your own framework. For example, if you are more comfortable on the short side, then you need to be really good at detecting market talk, right? So, um, so 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 then then maybe maybe you will need a framework to tell how the indicators that signaling market talk are different or the same from those indicators that are signaling market market bottom. They are not necessarily just a mirror image of each other. I can tell you that, okay? But would you know that without looking at the historical data? You won't, right? So <laughs> that's why we're going through this process. So this, this has, has a purpose, okay? So, but go back to our moving average. So let's just say, okay, we have this moving average feature that help us. But you can already tell by looking at a very short period of data that this moving average is not foolproof either, right? For example, this like a November, November to December of last year. Now in on November 11th, our moving indicator, moving average indicator give give us a signal to say, okay, there is a turning point to the upside in the market. But afterwards, it really market didn't do much. And then like uh, a month later, uh, the downside crossover happened. Okay, so if you if you <laughs> if you just rely on this part of this one indicator alone, then this period, this one month, is going to be a miserable month for you because you are expecting a upturn in the market and an upturn didn't happen. How disappointing, right? And if you are trying to go long in the market because you expect the upturn will be happening, and here you will be chopped, right? You will be, uh, mar the market will swing you because essentially this one month, the market didn't do anything, no trend, right? It's basically flat, up and down, up and down, and up and down, and everybody, every day, you're just uh, sitting there uh, looking at the, looking at your pro uh, portfolio, very frustrated, right? Because it's not going anywhere. So you can already tell, this moving indicator is not foolproof, especially 
in the times when market is very choppy, it goes up and down, up and down. It doesn't have a trend. In those cases, you can have a lot of these crossovers happen, but they don't mean anything. You're just being chopped. Okay. You're just, uh, if you're going in and out and in and out of market, depending on this feature alone, you're just uh, handing over the commissions to your brokerage left and right. Right. So with no gains. Um, but at some point, at some Sometimes it, it is useful also, right? Because it does tell you when, when the actual meaningful trend has started. Now you're thinking, okay, so if these uh, moving indicator, moving average indicator is so noisy, can I just increase the length of the uh, moving average so that I get less of these noise? So for example, if instead of using 21 day as the slower moving uh moving average what if we use like uh 50 days for example if i change this to 50 days what would that happen what would happen then right so then you can immediately see that it because it gives less signal it gives less signal because because uh, the 50 day moving average it, it wiggles less <laughs> compared to the 21 day, right? So it gives less signal. So maybe those signals are more meaningful in that case, especially if you uh, have a, if your goal is to, to, to have a longer term portfolio, but how long is long? <laughs> that is, that definition is uh, different for everybody, right? So then I will, I will leave, leave this for your, for your own investigation, right? So if you if you decide to use some kind of moving average, what is the appropriate length of moving average for you to optimize the signal to noise ratio, right? So, uh, but this part, I I will move this back to the twenty one day. Okay. So, but you can you can this is uh, again I'm not telling you. That's why I'm not telling you a definitive answer because there's no definitive answer. And what you really need to build is a framework that will help you make decisions. That will help you to come up with your own decision-making process, right? In a sort of a scientific way. And what I mean by scientific way is you have a hypothesis and you go test the hypothesis and you validate or invalidate the hypothesis. And then you iterate and do it all over again. Over time, you improve. Your, then make your process better. Okay, so now we know, so now we have two features. Now you're thinking, okay, um, how about, uh, what if we can enhance our predict predictability of, uh, of uh, market cycles by incorporating some um, extreme cases? Extreme cases meaning sometimes market is, uh, very exuberant um, to the insane degree. Um, and after those period, you you know, like essentially market bubbles, you will see market drop, right? Usually pretty significant drop. And the opposite side is when the market is in the downturn and the market sentiment is so pessimistic, right? And it eventually lead to the market being quote unquote oversold. Uh, that is what, the definition of oversold or overbought is essentially the price level is fund deviating from the fundamental so much, right? However, you, you define the fundamentals. So if we incorporate those features that tell us whether markets overbought or oversold, would that help us to come up with some, to, to better detect market cycles? 
right? So so we can we can try this too. So there there are all sorts of uh, oscillator type of uh, indicator, and again, those are dimensionality reductions of price and volume data. Okay, they all come up come come from the same data source. So you're not getting any new information. It's just making the processing easier. Okay, um, so so there are all sorts of those indicators. Um, so I'm gonna add one here. Okay, I'm gonna add one here. Uh, which is the Keltner channel. It's essentially, for those of you who are not familiar, um, just very quickly, what it does is, it, it's essentially, it's it's a band, right? You, you, you can see like uh, right now, there is a gray colored band appeared on our um, price chart. What, what it's telling you is actually, um, it first to calculate how much on average what what is the price range on average on a daily basis for this underlying instrument? In in this case, we're using Nasdaq index. Okay, so and then it the band is essentially a multiple of that average price range, uh, from the moving average. Okay, in this case, I'm using um a counter channel of from based off of the twenty one day moving average. And I'm using a multiple of three. So what I mean is these band, like upper band and and uh like a, a lower band, what they're telling you is essentially it's a uh the three multiples of average price range of this instrument. Okay. So the idea is when the price or this indicator value moves outside, it's usually it, it operates within this bound. It usually stay, stays pretty close to its moving average, right? So if it goes outside of this bound, it, it's it's something pretty extraordinary. And if it goes outside of this bound to the upside, it may tell you that the market is overbought because it deviated a lot from the moving average. and. What do we mean? How do we define a lot in this case? We define it by more than three multiple, more than three times the average daily price range from the 21 day moving average. So, as you can see, like all these, we have, we come up with a general idea, right? The overbought and oversold, basically price deviating from the fundamentals, more or less. And then we need a way, we, we will we will find some way to quantify this, right? So that you can, when we say market is overbought or trend is accelerating or um, price is in a downtrend, these are descriptive, but you have to got to find a way to actually put these ideas into a quantitative sense, right? So this Keltner channel is one way to quantify quantitatively describe this uh, idea of overbought and oversold. So so after we add this, you can just by eyeballing this uh, this uh, price chart, does, does that help us to determine um, price turning point? Well, let's see. On uh, this, this, this point, you know, uh, July 19th, you know, um, the price, essentially the index hit the upper bound. So, does that so that tells us okay maybe market is overbought? Does that signal a downtrend is coming? Well, in this case, sort of you can say 
that day is actually the 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 recent top of Nasdaq index. Afterwards, it just went down, right? Until now. Um, and also you can see the previous top. Previous top is some um, uh June 16th. And after June 16th, we have this uh, little uh, little correction, right? But you but here's the thing though. You have this little correction, but it's not really a downtrend looking back, right? So what you can already tell is this feature is giving you too much signal, <laughs> right? So because the market can be quote unquote overbought, but it can be continue to be overbought for an extended period of time. It doesn't mean that price will immediately go down, right? So that's two different things. And you can also see this if we uh, go earlier uh, on the opposite side, for example, in last year in April, May, you can see that this period price, the index, the index of NASDAQ repeatedly hit the lower bound of this uh, Keltner channel, right? Does that mean the market trend will turn? No, it kind of keep hitting the lower bound for like 10 days or so. And after, after that, it bounced a little bit and then dropped again and continue hitting the lower bound, okay? So what you can deduce from, and, and on the other hand, sometimes there is a market uptrend, but it doesn't give you a signal at all. Like for example, in January, right? We know like at the beginning of January, the market starts to turn up, but then here we didn't even hit, at the beginning of January, we didn't even hit the lower bound of counter channel, right? So now we have two, we have two approaches we can try to improve this. We can either try different parameter values. For example, instead of using three multiples, we're using other multiples, five or two or 10, or instead of base, it off, base this off of a 21 day moving average, we base it, off, base it off some other moving average, longer or shorter, right? So you can try those, but the bottom line is, I think you will, you will discover, you know, essentially, there's no foolproof indicator. There's no foolproof single feature that can tell you 100% spring has arrived or there will be winter coming soon. Okay. No 100% foolproof. So, but is this useful? It could be useful, right? So it could be useful. Now, now we, we can also think, okay, we have a few different features now, right? We have the... Um, count the days, three out of five days, price trend up or down. We have the moving average crossover. We have the thing called, you know, uh, the band, the um, price multiple band called uh, cotton channel. So we have these three already. There are countless, okay? You can come up with all sorts of things. But let's just say, how, how will we, like, can we get a better result if instead of using each one of these, we use them together? What what if we stack them together and say, okay, here is a checklist for spring. If I go out today, I need to see temperature going up, birds are chirping, trees are producing leaves, there are new flowers and insects and warm uh, warm air and uh, uh, people going out, people are outside playing tennis. I need to see all these six things to tell me spring has come, okay? Or... Um, maybe I'll need at least three out of these six things 
to give me a sort of a reliable signal to say spring has come. You get the idea, right? So we have three signal. We have three features potentially producing signal of market turning point, but we can combine them, right? We can say, okay, let's see. Um, if we look at the most recent downturn, we know that the price hit the counter channel's upper bound in July 19, and like uh, 10 days later, is that 10 days? Let's see, how long does it take for moving average crossover to happen? Um, okay, it's about 15, 15 days. Okay, 14, 15 days, two weeks later. Two weeks later, we have the moving average crossover to the ups to the downside. So what if, what if we combine these two and we use these together, we say, okay, when we observe that counter channel upper bound is hit and within the 10 to 20 days afterwards, a moving average crossover to the downside happened, if these two combine together, that will tell us that market downturn has started. How about that? So that is a way you can we can combine these two, right? So then this, if we have this idea, we need to test this idea, right? We need to test this idea. We go back to look at how reliable, if we combine these two ideas together, how reliable this will tell us um, in terms of market upturn or downturn, right? You can you can go test this yourself, right? I'm not going going to go through this um, um, go through this again. So, um, okay, what else? So you think about okay. All so far, we have discussed three ways, three potential features that can help us to look at to to detect market turning point. But they're all coming from essentially daily price data, right? You have other data available in the market besides the daily price data. You have the intraday data, right? Each intraday data can be every hour, every minute, every tick. You can, you know, it can, you can drill down to each and every transaction even. You, if that data is available, but the question is just, is that data gonna help you, right? Is the intraday data in terms of in this 24 hours window, the price goes up and down, up and down. What does that tell you? Does it give you additional information aside from the daily data that we've been using? Maybe yes, maybe no, okay? That's something for you to investigate, but that's a, that's an idea, right? Because as we said, the price data, any price data is already a dimensionality reduction, right? The actual financial market is not a price chart. It's not some number that shows on your screen. The actual financial market is hundreds, thousands of millions of people <laughs> across the globe, right? Investors in the morning, they sit there. If, if they're retail investors, they're, they're sitting in their home, sipping their coffee, looking at the price chart, deciding which stock to buy or sell. Or if you're a professional, you are like, seven o'clock and eight o'clock in the morning you're in your office you're having your morning meetings of like uh dis like a uh, discussing your portfolio strategies of what stocks to buy what stocks to sell and what like how much market exposure you should have for the next week or next month and 
all of these people making decisions, and then you have these chat rooms, these online forums, the, the Wall Street bets, the Twitter, everybody's discussing, everybody's thinking what their strategies are. And then that manifested as the, you know, the bids and offers in the market. And then you have transactions happen, people like maybe taking the, you know, they're the, the taking the offer price or the, the you know, the, maybe they decide, okay, I'm not going to buy because the market because the price is too high, I don't like it. All of these decisions in every transactions, these are all information, these are data points, right? That's that's what the actual market is. And your daily price chart, what we are looking at right now, is summarizing all of that huge quantity of information. And then just to drill it down to like a candlestick, it has four data points, right? Open, close, high, low price. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is a very, very dramatic dimensionality reduction. And if, if you're telling me all that vast amount of information, that actual financial market information I just described is of no relevance, and we, we can just use this uh, four data points for each day to decide how the market is behaving. Who are you kidding? <laughs> you are losing drastic, like drastically like losing the huge amount of information in the market, right? But unfortunately, this is what we have right now. But um, just like in terms of the data available, this is what we are looking at. But we can definitely, you know, but what, what my point is, uh, you also want to think about outside of this price and volume chart, right? Which is the most of the retail investors are using. You want to think, think, think outside of this, what other information that you can gather that can potentially give you more features, potential features, not necessarily useful or not useful, but you need to test them, right? And if you don't have the information, you can't test. So um, like, for example, uh, to some people, the Options market is important and it's getting more important because a lot more people are involved in the market, right? In the options market. So there is a historically pretty reliable inverse correlation between the VIX index and the S&P um, and the S&P, uh, you know, market conditions. So essentially the VIX index is the like uh, S&P volatility in index. It's computed from the uh, S&P future, uh, S&P options, um, implied volatility values. And so this, uh, so if you look at this screen on the um, panel, so so the panel on the top is S&P, okay, daily price. And the panel at the bottom is the VIX index. And if you just like, this is uh, from uh, beginning of this year, so now, if you just eyeball this, right, you can already tell there is sort of a, uh, they go in opposite directions, right? And very obviously, for example, during March, when the U.S. Uh, regional bank is uh, are having troubles, you have the VIX index uh, going up while the S&P is going down, right? And uh, even like recently, you see, for example, um, in like starting in August, S&P going down and VIX has jumped up, right? So you sort of see an inverse correlation. So this is can be your additional feature, right? It can tell you about the market trend as well. Um, there is a little technical problem here though, because 
if you look at the VIX index, it has uh, over the very long term, it has a downtrend, right? It, it generally starting 2020, for example, it's been going down. Um, if you look at previously previous years, uh, this does not actually extend very far. But the thing is, it has a tendency <laughs> to go down over time. Um, so how so 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 in that case, what we are going to do is, um, what we can do is instead of using this raw index, we can add a moving average on top of it. That would tell you, because um, the moving average gives you a relatively stable like baseline of the value of VIX index, right? And then we can look at, for example, how the actual value is uh, relative to that moving average, right? So in this case, if I add a 21-day moving average for the VIX back onto the chart, what are we going to get here is, you see, um, now it's like a, um, now your your assessment can be less affected by the fact that VIX has been going down over over long term, right? Now you can see like um, when the VIX is going above the moving average. In this case, we are using twenty one days. Okay, when it's going above, it's generally associated with a market downtrend, right? When it's below the moving average. Uh, for example, from March till uh, end of July, you have this move. You have this. The VIX index generally is below the moving average. Then you have a stable and uprising market, right? And uh, uh, if we go, like for example, it's the same thing. Uh, if we go, let's say. Um, Uh, last uh, last summer, um, we know that last summer we had a little bit uh, of a bull market, right? From from July to mid August, and in this period, you can also see the VIX index went below the moving average, right? So so this gives you some additional ideas. Like this is also a feature that we can potentially use. Is it foolproof? No. <laughs> can you just use this one indicator? to make a judgment about spring and winter? Probably not. But again, um, as we talk about, there's not, you you know, you, you definitely, uh, to make a more sophisticated and more accurate judgment, just like you make the judgment about whether we are in spring or winter, you always combine different features and different data values, right? So that is a given. Um, it doesn't mean that the more features, the better. It's 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 not like that, right? Because you you have you you have to find some kind of golden mean, um, if you will. Because if you have more features, of course it will give you more, um, more potentially more signals, right? But it also introduces more noise. So if you assign a weight to a particular feature. You are also assigned some weights to the noise that's produced by that feature, right? For example, if you're uh, if you're deciding which features you need to rely on to determine to assess whether we are in spring, let's say you decided that 
um, insects are important. You want to see the worms starts making noise, or you have you want to see like butterflies flying around, and so those behaviors will sick will be a good signal for you to say spring has come. But what if one day, one spring day, okay, for completely unrelated reason, this signal does not this this signal does not show up. For example, if the I don't know, the insect control department in your local government, like one day decided, okay, we have too many harmful bugs in the area. We're gonna spread the entire area with pesticides and it kills all the bugs <laughs> in where, where, where you live. And next day you go out the door, you don't see any bugs, you don't hear any insects. If this is a crucial value, crucial feature that you rely on, to tell you whether spring is here or not, but now it gets annihilated for totally unrelated reason. What are you gonna do, right? So um, it's not like, so So that's why it's, when you have a new feature, it gives you new information, but introduces new noise as well. So you always want to kind of come up with some, come up with your own rules to help you synthesize and, um, synthesize the signals that different features are giving you to come up with a conclusion that you feel comfortable with, right? So, um, uh, so, so what are some of the other like non-price and volume uh, informations that we can use? Uh, the other thing, for example, is uh, I talked about this before, okay, which which I, I actually looked at uh, for quite a bit is market breadth, right? So in a bull market, if it's a proper bull market, you should see the majority or you should see an increasing number of the financial instruments in that market being bid, right? Being bought. So uh, it, it, in the NASDAQ, for example, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't see like only since since the Nasdaq index gives a lot of weight to larger companies, right? So which has happened in this uh, past few months as well. Since it gives a lot of weight to the larger companies, you see that index value rising because stocks like Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Nvidia, those stocks are being bought, right? But the thing is the market breadth is actually not very wide. So the rest of the Nasdaq market wasn't catching a very strong bid at all, right? So that gives you some information, right? So if it's a broad-based bull market, then you should see, you know, a fair a fair number of the instruments, a fair number of tickers in this market. It should be bought as well. So the market breadth will give you some judgment. And in on the other hand, if you see the market breadth deteriorating, that tells you something as well, right? It tells you this, whatever bull market that's going on that doesn't have enough participation. So maybe it's quite vulnerable to fail, especially if you see that participation, not only it's not broadening, but it's actually narrowing. That definitely tells you that that is another another potential feature that you can use, right? So um, I'll give you an example. Of because that we are on this uh, uh, trading view charts, um, I'll give you an example actually from the crypto market. Okay, so it's, a, it's the same thing. If you apply this to the crypto market to to the stock market, a lot of these concepts 
um, mechanisms that work similarly, right? But do they work the same? No, because if you want to tell, <laughs> it's the same idea. If you want to make an assessment of whether it's a spring or a winter, you, your your decision making set, your 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 data set or your feature set will vary depending on where you where you are, right? If you're in the Sahara Desert compared to if you're in Australia, if you're in California, or if you're in the South Pole, you will have a different feature set to determine whether spring has come, right? Because it will uh, have different signs. The same thing, you know, uh, crypto market and the stock market, they're not the same, okay? You cannot just transfer one market features to uh, the other one directly, but one maybe give you some insight and inspiration about the other so you can go test your hypothesis, right? So in this case, we can, this this is like a market breath. It's actually quite useful to the crypto market as well. So what do I mean by this? So um, what, what I'm like on this chart, what I'm plotting, these uh, black and white like candlestick lines, they are the market cap of Bitcoin and Ethereum adding together, okay? Um, so these are basically large cap. 70% of the crypto market uh, market cap, okay? Is Bitcoin and Ethereum together. And the yellow orange line here is the market cap, total crypto market cap aside from Bitcoin and Ethereum. So basically it's the altcoin market cap together, okay? So what do you see here? Here we are starting this, these are plotting from the beginning of 2023 to now, okay? What you see here is uh, Bitcoin Ethereum market cap increased by 30%, but the altcoin market cap increased by uh, 17%. And also this 17%, if you zoom in, right? If we start this plot from like March, from the uh, low point of US uh, regional bank, um, you know, that thing started, you see that now from March to now, the altcoin market cap, it's basically flat, okay? So, and then uh, the market cap increase in crypto is basically all caused by Bitcoin and Ethereum. Does this tell you something? <laughs> to me, it does, all right? To me, again, I wanna tell you, what I'm telling you is the reason market, like uh, these uh, breath indicator is valuable is for in a proper bull market, you wanna see participation, right? You wanna see like a different tickers you want, you want to see more tickers participate in that bull market move, right? Otherwise, there's there's something. Otherwise, you you know, the risk, what it tells you is the risk-taking appetite of the investors. They are not particularly strong. In this case, in the crypto market, you see like all the money, if there's any money flowing in the crypto, crypto market, they are all flowing into Bitcoin and Ethereum right now, right? It tells you this is not really, even if you see like a price, and increase like crypto market size increase somewhat it's not a proper bull market okay so compared to if we compare this to for example the beginning of 2021 okay we go to beginning of 2021 what do you see here so let, let's drag this chart to start in the beginning of 2021 you see that from january 2021 to May 2021, Bitcoin and Ethereum market cap increased 27%, altcoin market cap increased 458%, okay? <laughs> so this is a market that has proper participation, right? So 
this is also why at the beginning you remember i told you in the <laughs> you 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 can spend all day um you know analyzing technical indicators for a specific stock or a spe specific token you can um <laughs> you can you know try to uh figure out which token will go up uh in the near term but the thing is you if you just follow the market trend you will have a much easier job doing that because in this market 2021 like the first 6 months right this is a shoe fish in a barrel market. You buy any altcoin, right? Whether it has any bullish news or not, you're probably not doing too shabby, okay? You can be a complete idiot and still making money. As opposed to, as opposed to now, <laughs> you see from May to now, the altcoin market cap is actually going down. In this market, even if you... you this is not a market you can you cannot technical analysis yourself out to par to profit in this kind of market okay even if you are complete pro in like uh trading this this will be because the market conditions you you will have a difficult life okay so um so so that's that's what i that's what i mean when i said this is probably the mastering the market cycles is probably the most important edge and also the relatively low-hanging fruit that you can master to boost your returns and minimize your drawdowns, okay? So it's not like, okay, again, it's not like, now some of you um, listening to this, you may be thinking, um, well, Tasha, but it's, you know, XYZ tokens, it's still going up and it's going up a lot. Yeah, I know. What I'm saying is prob probabilistically speaking, I know their token going up, okay? But probabilistically speaking, what percentage tokens are going up versus going down? And if you want to catch those going up in a market that is not being supportive, your chance of success will be drastically reduced. Okay. And and indeed, there are things going up. For example, uh, what is the some good example recently? Uh, for example, this uh CAS. No, no, it's KAS, I think. Uh Caspa. Um th this one has been doing quite well, right? So since the beginning of this year, and it's quite actually quite persistent for whatever reason. These these are all they all have their individual stories and you need to investigate, right? And uh and what else? Uh this this one X XDC. Um this this also, right, recently since since July, right? It's it's been going up uh quite quite a lot and the most recent example what is the uh rlb is that what the tigger is yeah uh rlb right so since since uh since july to now went up a lot but so my point is it's not like there is no there is nothing going up besides bitcoin and ethereum there are but i can count them with one hand right now right in 2021, I I I can't use I, I use my fingers and my toes and I I cannot count the number of to tokens that are going up dramatically. So I hope you get my point. Okay. So again, what do we talk about today? We talk about basically a framework to help you to come up with your own ways to analyze 
market cycles, uptrend, downtrend, whether we are in the winter, we are in the um, spring, and how do you detect those turning points? And this is going to be really, really helpful for you, whether you're doing the short-term trading or you're doing longer-term investing. The difference is only the time frame that you're looking at, and that will determine the feature or the indicator set you are um you are using to make your judgment in terms of market cycles, right? Because if you're a longer term, you you care more about the longer term cycles. If you're a short a shorter term investor, you care about the you know day to day wiggles in the market. So what you care is different, but the underlying concept is the same. You basically start from start from the very basic, right? You come up with a set of features using the data science language, a set of features, basically a set of variables that can potentially tell you about where we are in the market, especially about the market turning point, right? And then you kind of, you combine these set of features and then you kind of try to assign different ways to those features. And you go back to the historical data, you look at how, if you combine those features together, will help you to make a relatively good judgment about the market's past behavior because all historical data is all we have, right? We don't have the future data. <laughs> At least we haven't invented that technology yet. And also like through that process, it's an iterative process, right? Because through that process, you will realize, okay, maybe this one this one feature is more important. That one is less important. Maybe I, I assign, I'll, I'll give this feature like, 50% of the weight. And that feature is only worth 10% of the weight. Whether you want to be that specific, it depends on your personality, whether you are more logical or you are a more intuitive personality. But I think this general framework, it applies to everybody, okay? So, and then after that, you iterate, right? Because the market continues to change. If you look at, okay, um, my framework, if I apply this to the most recent upturn or downturn, does it work as well as it did before? If it doesn't work as well, something I need to fine tune, something I need to adjust. Maybe I need to take take out some of the feature. Maybe I need to add some other features. Maybe there are new market development that I'm not taking into account, right? So, but this is something that you can iterate and you can optimize over time and you can, it allows you to also evolve with the market as well. And this is a lifelong learning process for everybody, right? Because market is always changing. It's like human race is evolving. So um, I think this type of thing is like, if you have the framework, it's so much more valuable than comparing to if you just uh, go to someone who's supposedly an expert and that person tells you, okay, use these five things. And first of all, that kind of, that kind of service will not be free, free, okay? As opposed to what I'm doing right now, <laughs> <laughs> it will not be free and I don't think it will serve you well serve you the best in the long term because in the best in long term you want to know how to fish right you you don't want just someone tell you to give you a fish okay and that fish will probably cost you a lot <laughs> so um so that's all for today um uh, so if you've been listening to this on on uh podcasting platforms if you're on uh, apple podcast or spotify feel free to leave a review and a rating, right? So I would appreciate a five-star review or rating. And uh, if you are on YouTube, don't forget to like or comment on the video. And uh, I will talk to you next time. Bye.